Welcome to the Project Zion podcast. This podcast explores the unique spiritual and theological gifts Community of Christ offers for today's world. Hello and welcome to the Project Zion podcast. I'm your host, Carla Long, and today you're listening to Percolating on Faith with Tony and Charmaine Shavala-Smith. Hello, Charmaine. Hello, Tony. Hi, Carla. It's good to be here. Hi, Carla. Nice to see you. It's wonderful to see you. Thanks so much for being here back with us today. And you guys just work so hard for Project Zion. I'm going to put in a request to double your salary. <laughs> double it. Double it. with that and like 20 bucks you could go out to eat almost Almost. and you know carla when you do double our salary we're going to take you out on that (laughs) oh lucky me (laughs) how do you feel about taco bell carla (laughs) you know how i feel about taco bell (laughs) it's a little embarrassing to me but anyway um i'm just so appreciative that you always say yes and today we're going to be talking about something that we don't talk about community of Christ all that often. And so to tell you the truth, I don't feel like I know that much about it. So I'm going to be learning just as much as everyone else today. I have a feeling. So um, we're going to be talking about atonement and I can already like hear people in community Christ going, what? <laughs> so Hi. I kind of feel like our first question should be, what is atonement? <laughs> what are we talking about? Right. Yeah. Well, and I think one of the things that that we probably just need to do is that sometimes when people hear it, what they get, what they what comes to mind is kind of a popularized idea of it in Christian culture, which is is actually more probably more like an evangelical definition of it. And that's kind of the default that people go to. And um, and that's sometimes called substitutionary atonement, the idea that Jesus had to die because we're all sinners and God wanted to kill us, but kills Jesus instead. So you, are you familiar with that one? Have you heard that one? It's, it's sometimes called penal substitution, meaning penalty, right? That, that Jesus is paying the penalty for us that we should have paid. Um, and it's, it's not, in some ways, it's quite kind of a problematic way of thinking about the God-human relationship. And the but the other problem is that that's sometimes all that people think of when they hear, hear the term atonement. And, and probably just even from the way that we've described it, you can see the problems with that as far as um, community of Christ theology. Um, it, it paints a very harsh picture of God who has to, um, to get justice through violence. Um, and it, and there's the sense that uh, some people have have characterized it as um, cosmic child abuse. You know that that God, you know, kills his son, kind of thing. So there's a lot of issues with it, and consequently, lots of reactions when you say atonement. Um, but most people don't realize that that is one understanding of atonement among many, but it's the one that you hear most. And it's the one that causes most reactions for those who don't have a particular view of God as a angry judging God who uh, requires punishment and to be satisfied. So, so um, that's often the reason either we don't talk about it or 
that we make our distance from it, you know, individually and sometimes as churches as well. So what we want to do is start again with where you started with what does the word atonement actually mean? And then look at some, uh, there's just a beautiful variety of ways of understanding atonement through that come through Christian history. So we're going to unpack a few of those. And I think you'll probably see some of those that are, are embraced by community of Christ people and even by the church as a whole. Um, so anyhow, we're, so the first thing is atonement. Well, let's, atonement. Start, let's just start with the word, the word atonement, the English word comes from around 1600 or so. It's from, it's from the 17th century. And it's literally at one meant. In other words, it's a, it's a middle English word to try to describe the reconciliation of a relationship, an at one, a coming to at one. And so like at one between, at between two parties who are estranged in some way. And so um, this, this was a word that uh, Middle English translators of the Bible used, to, they created to describe or to translate certain texts from the Hebrew Bible and certain texts from the New Testament. So the, the, the basic idea, though, if we go back to the New Testament, is that in some sense, Jesus's death affects some kind of reconciliation between humankind and God. That's the underlying idea. And it's really important to know that the New Testament does not give a a fully worked out theory about that, does not lay out, all right, so here's what it means and here's how it works. Instead, what the New Testament gives is a lot of different images and pictures and stories, right? So some of the stories uh, are stories we typically read over really quickly. We don't even pay attention. For example, in the Gospels, the story of uh, when, when Jesus is arrested and Pilate says, you you all right, you guys. You you have this you have this custom where uh, I let somebody go at Passover. Who, do you remember you let Jesus of Nazareth go? And they say, no, give us Barabbas. And there's a kind of a there's a kind of a play on words going on there because in Aramaic, Barabbas means son of the father. Literally, it could mean son of the father. And so everybody in the, reading the story knows that the the criminal, the guilty criminal Barabbas, the guilty son of the father is let go, and the non-guilty son of the father is crucified. So that's, that's embedded in the story. But the thing is, the New Testament doesn't just go with that image. There's, there's all kinds of images, reconciliation, um, the image of, of, of Christ's, Christ's love covering for us, um, the, the use of the term uh, expiation in some, some texts of the New Testament. Um, gosh, the, yeah, go ahead. Well, Jeremy. I was thinking of in Luke, the idea of what Jesus' life and death is, is example. This is how we live. If we're going to follow Jesus, um, then being willing to follow Jesus to the death is part of following Jesus. So that Jesus' death is um, more like... Um, a test. Are you willing to go with, follow Jesus and the kingdom that Jesus was talking about to death? So there, Jesus um, is the example giver, the, the the one who we follow, and his death is is about 
it's a it's a it's a noble the noble death of a prophet that we are that, that followers are to uh, imitate, imitate yeah. if they find themselves in a similar position. But, you know, there's all these phrases in the New Testament. Christ died for us. On behalf of us. Christ died for our sins. Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins Which of the world. Which we might have heard in the last few weeks with the Gospel of John. Um, and especially in the first chapter, John the Baptist calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Another one is, you know, Christ is the expiation of our sins. And the Greek texts there who use that word, the Greek word is hilasterion, which is the way the Greek translators of the Hebrew Bible use that to, to, to translate the mercy seat that covered the Ark of the Covenant where blood was sprinkled. And so there's all these different kinds of images for the meaning of Christ's death and in the New Testament. Did you mention ransom? I didn't. No, I didn't mention that one. Ransomed, redeemed. Those are all words as well that that more are like um, us gaining our freedom because Jesus was willing to um, to be replace to take exchange places with us. So, mm-hmm. so, but that's that's different from that one that we're so reactive to. So, there's a whole lot of different ways of understanding what atonement meant to the, to the first Christians and for the, for the Christians in the first century. So not just the people around Jesus who are saying, what do we make of this thing that happened? Jesus died and then he came alive again. And so that death really raises lots of questions and possibilities about what is it that God is saying through this? Um, but then for the people a generation or two later, uh, who are the writers of the New Testament, and they're trying to put words on it in, in new situations that they're finding themselves in, and uh, whether it's trying to make sense of it in a in a very literary kind of Greek world where it needs there has to be reasonableness in what one is saying. Um, so there's that need to make it more articulate, um, but also in contrast to some of the philosophies and eventually some of the heresies that come, it's like, how do we, how do we more concretely describe what it is that Jesus life and ministry, but also especially Jesus death, what does that mean? What does it do? What, what effect does it have? And then what's the relationship of that death to his life and of that death to his resurrection. And so um, it's really, it's maybe easy to forget, or maybe we never learned that mo- nobody really expected a Messiah who would be publicly executed. <laughs> and so after Easter, the disciples, when they encounter the risen Christ again, that, one of the things they have to try and start making sense of is what did it mean that he was killed? What, and, and so one of the places they go to is the Hebrew Bible. In other words, they're trying to make sense of their experience. And one of the places they go to, obviously, is to the Hebrew Bible. And they go to sacrificial imagery. But that's not the only place they go for images. In other words, something about this event of a, a the Messiah being crucified was so mysterious and so powerful that they just are grabbing everywhere for images to try to you know, put some words on it. And so that's why you know, the New Testament doesn't work out a single view of it. It has multiple kinds of images and hints 
And so then in subsequent Christian theology, what happens is that is that thinkers try to say, what actually does it mean that Christ died pro nobis for us? What is the meaning of the for us? And so atonement theologies then uh, explore, uh, particularly explore what is the meaning of the death of Jesus Christ, who is the who is divine? What does it mean that the word of God who became flesh died? What does it mean that Christ, who is Emmanuel, died? What what is that for us about? So that's that's where atonement theology starts. Well, this has just been already kind of mind-blowing for me. And I wonder if it is mind-blowing for our listeners as well, because like the prevailing, the prevailing theme is always that God had to kill Jesus in order (laughs) for us to have our sins forgiven. And I think the very first time I heard that that wasn't the case, I was an adult, you know, I, that, I mean, it's just so easy to believe because everyone believes it. And it's even sprinkled into some of our hymns, maybe our old timey hymns that I grew up singing and that God had to kill Jesus. And then the second, I think it was Terry Reed who said to me, well, did God really have to kill someone in order to forgive you? And I was like, what? No, I guess God didn't. What God would that be? Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, this is, this is just really, really exciting to hear because I, what I hope that we leave our listeners with is some other ideas of how they can think of the atonement. And I don't know if you're ready to jump into that, if you have some things for us, but we would love to hear maybe some other ways to think about that. Well, we've come up with at least nine. (laughs) So, uh, So, and we've tried to come up with some catchy titles for them as well as, you know, proper titles. And so we'll, we'll go through that, but here's one of the things. So though there's lots of different interpretations of what atonement means, all, almost all of them have some things in common, even the nasty one that we're, (laughs) we're saying is the whole thing. Well, and and here's the other thing is that quite often all of these, uh, we may be aware of different meanings of atonement, some of these different um, understandings, but we may have collapsed them all into one and don't realize that we actually have bits and pieces of several different ones that we're using. So, but most of them have some elements in common. One is that Jesus represents God's love, that Jesus's life and death is in some way a representation of God's love. That Jesus' death has purpose or meaning. Doesn't mean it was intention, you know, it had to happen, but it, it, but that there is something in Jesus' death that has an effect or meaning. And then this, the idea of reconciliation, that there's something in Jesus' life and death that reconciles people and forgiveness can be part of this. People with God reconnects them to each other. There's lots of different ways in which that that is seen. Um, and that Jesus' death and resurrection point to some future reality. That's another element that's implied, if not articulated. And then all of the models are concerned about the divine human relationship. And so these are some elements that you'll find in almost all of the atonement um, models that we're going to be talking about. So 
way we're going to do it is historically. Yeah. And I want to add one thing before okay. we jump into historical. And that is, so um, in terms of in terms of Christian theology, it's really important to know that while the ancient creeds of the Christian church, uh, the seven ecumenical councils, as they're, as they're called, they, they dealt with issues like the nature of God as Trinity, the nature of Christ as fully divine and fully human, the nature of the Holy Spirit as fully divine, as, as, as coming from God, fully divine through Christ. Those things that were dealt with by the ancient creeds remain really important uh, touchstones for all, pretty much all Christians today. And that includes community of Christ. We don't use the creeds, but we, we, we affirm the basic truths of them. However, there was no ancient Christian council that ever once decided that there's only one true model of the atonement. Here's where we get that. We get that from Protestant fundamentalism, which had as one of its fundamentals, substitutionary atonement. That's the only one. They, they taught that that's the one true model. And that was a departure from centuries and centuries of Orthodox, universal, Catholic, Christian teaching. So I think that's really important for us to know that there is no, there's no formal universally agreed upon document in the Christian church that in the Christian tradition, it says, oh, and there's also just one model of atonement. Those darn Protestant fundamentals, they mess up our theology all the time. I feel like it's, I, it's actually a constant problem, isn't it? <laughs> it is a constant problem because there are more and more conversations I have with you two. And, you know, you you talk about how this is a modern invention. This is a modern thing. You know, all these things that are kind of messing with people's heads because it's easy yeah. to understand or, you know, like that's what they've heard their whole lives. Those Protestant fundamentals. I'm just telling <laughs> you right now. Well, they're looking for absolutes. And that's the problem because then you start carving away the nuances and the subtleties and the multifaceted aspects of God and Jesus and faith and doubt and hope and all of those things. And you make it into a formula and that's so that you can have all the answers. And that, and that's the problem with any kind of fundamentalism. And it's especially true here. Um, And we'll, we'll look at some of the reasons why this one particular kind of atonement model is really appealing to those who want absolute answers. Carl, you know that classic that classic Christmas movie, A Christmas Story, you know about Ralphie and his BB gun fun. The Protestant fundamentalism is like Bumpus's hounds. It's like they're they're just all they're they're barking, <laughs> they're always getting in, they're always making a mess. And always they hijack the turkey. They do, they hijack everything. <laughs> so think, <laughs> think think of fundamentalism as the Bumpus's hounds. Of Christian, of the Christian faith. <laughs> well, and they do. They hijack the language. They do. They make it narrow and often um, punitive. Um, the idea of grace and God's love gets truncated. Anyhow, so yeah. yes, yes. Thanks for that. For <laughs> that's very helpful imagery for me. <laughs> very helpful. <laughs> I was thinking just now, Tony and Charmaine and I could probably come up with a very good word for Protestant fundamentals. Maybe for a later podcast. Maybe for later. <laughs> yes. But so now let's maybe it's time to jump into some of those yes, models sure. yeah. and, and like tell us maybe some ideas of what we could think about when we think about atonement rather than God right. has to kill someone. Right. So we're going to give you the first three models we're going to give you are the oldest models, the ones that, you know, if you took a course on Christian theology, these are the models you would cover. But remember, we have nine we're going to work with, but these three are, three are the ones that we would start with. So 
and the ones that are articulated earliest in Christian thought. So the first model is is a very old model, and it goes back to the second, third, fourth, and fifth century church. And it's sometimes identified as the Christus Victor model, Christ the Victor is the Latin title for it. And it's connected with people like St. Athanasius and St. Irenaeus and so on. And our, our catchy title for this, the, the memorable <laughs> title for this is... Trick the devil. Gotcha. <laughs> That's how this model works. So th- this model by these different ancient theologians, th- they use images from the, from the New Testament. And so early Christian theologians like uh, Irenaeus, they see the human condition not first in terms of guilt, but in terms of bondage. Human beings are in bondage to evil powers. And if we postmoderns have trouble imagining that and we start thinking of little demons running around, which the ancients might have, just remember, we deal with, we deal with personified powers all the time. Racism, mm-hmm. sexism, heterosexism. These, these are powers that have the capacity to distort human life. So that's so. Think in those terms. And so, um, what in in the ancient church they saw these personified powers primarily as sin, capital S, death, in the fear of death, and the devil. As these 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 were the three the three great powers that held human beings captive. So Christ, as fully human in this in this model, is like. He's he's swallowed he's swallowed up by the demonic powers in his crucifixion, right? The the the, the empire crucifies him. It's it's the demonic powers at work there. Christ, the human being, is swallowed up by. He death. allows himself to be swallowed by death. And so in that in that respect, then he's becoming a ransom. He's he's being he's he's this this payment, you know that 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 the evil powers need. Uh, to be satisfied. The thing is, it's a trick because he's fully human, but he's fully divine too. And so, as divine, he rises from dead, from the dead, the dead on Easter, and then, and that's in that respect, then breaks the back of the evil powers and their grip on humanity. Humanity then is is free from that point on to follow Christ, to seek the good, to serve God. Uh, so that's the the image of the Christus Victor model. It sounds like a great movie. <laughs> <laughs> it does, doesn't it? <laughs> it is. So I it's mean, like it's... it's like tricking the devil. It's like okay, Jesus, this this envoy of God, trying to make the world a better place, but he dies, and then he's in this view in in the clutches of of evil, of Satan, of death, and. And voila, you know, he no longer is. And he shows those powers for what they are insufficient to uh, match God's care and love for people. And so in this sense, the, the church fathers would say the meaning of the phrase Christ died for us is that he 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 uh, entered into these powers. He allowed these powers to swallow him up and then on our behalf rose from the dead, broke them open and broke them open. And so we're no longer captive, we're no longer captive to these, these personified powers. And so there's actually a certain uh, uh, ethical power in this. We are, we do not have to be capped because of Christ. We do not have to be held captive by fear, by fear of death. We could say by racism, sexism, mm-hmm. and so on. Christ has broken the back of those, those powers 
and what remains for us then is free, freely to resist them from that point on. And so in some ways, um, this would be kind of some of the roots of liberation theology today. Um, this idea that, mm-hmm. that um, Christ's willingness to show us the, the weakness of those things we fear uh, and, that, and that have imprisoned us or enslaved us um, gives us a kind of freedom. So that's the, that's the Christus Victor model. It was very popular in the ancient church and it came back a little bit in Martin Luther's time in the reformation, then came back. Some theologians brought it back in the 1930s as they're facing fascism in Europe. Mm. It, it makes some kind of sense there. So that's the first, the first of the, we'll call them the three classic models. The second classic model is Oh, oh yeah, go ahead. Sorry, we, Sorry. main for, focus. Yeah. We also have given a kind of a main focus to each of these. And so the main focus for the Christus Victor is Jesus frees humanity from hostile powers. So that's the, the main focus. It's more about the nature of who Jesus is and what he has power to do. So the second of these classic models is the substitutionary atonement model, uh, as articulated by St. Anselm of Canterbury right around the year 1100 or so. And, uh, and, and so our, our catchy title for this one is a price required and paid. So this is the one that, that uh, some people have made as the one and only way, and they take it in a harsher way than it's originally formed as well. I start thinking, Charmaine, another catchy title for this one is check, please. <laughs> only, only it's, only it's God, 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 God is, God is asking for the check. And it's like, we don't have any money on us. Right. So <laughs> So Anselm is a medieval person. He's built, he builds on, he uses a lot of medieval social imagery as he tries to articulate what it means that Christ died for us, died for our sins. And some of it's kind of legal imagery, which he borrows from the New Testament. So the idea here is that humanity has incurred an infinite debt to God. Right? So we are, we are in debt to the Lord of the manor it's a debt we can't possibly pay, right? But it has to be paid, but we can't pay it. It's too big. It's infinite. The only one who could pay it is someone who is infinite themselves, and that would require a God-man, somebody who as human being can represent us, but somebody who as God has the infinite resources to, to pay this, this very large check that we can't, <laughs> we can't pay, right? So... So that's exactly for Anselm. That's exactly what what Christ is. Christ uh, Christ's death is this payment. This um, it it makes satisfaction for a debt we cannot pay, and then that you know sets us free from the power of sin and guilt. Uh, to when Jesus right takes care of that. Yeah, yeah. So it, in other words, the the relationship is restored. By 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 Christ, uh, in a sense, stepping in and um, fulfilling the requirements of justice. Um, but here too, th- this is a sign of divine mercy that God God self has made a way for this debt to be paid. Um, so that's that's something that kind of gets lost again in a modern day um, version of this. Yeah, like, but this, and this is the one that I just want 
the listeners to hear it. This is the one that everybody talks about. This is the one we were talking about earlier, right? The substitutionary right. atonement. This is this is the one that we hear all the time. And it came from such, it sounds like such a softer place rather than what we ended up with it now. So listeners, this is what we have been left with. <laughs> well, the, re- the reason, I mean, you're actually hearing the medieval version of it and the harsher version comes a few centuries later, later in the Reformation, and then Protestant revivalists take it over. In other words, Anselm doesn't doesn't really articulate that uh, all these guilty human beings should be put to death. He doesn't really articulate it that way. It's John Calvin and some later reformers and then the Protestant revivalists who go that route. That's the one where where you start here where it's kind of a it's kind of a, a, a deterioration of this model in the sense that you you so we're we're guilty and we deserve to die mm-hmm. right and so that gets really messy because then god god needs to kill us but then jesus takes it for us and then this is a sign of divine love and it sounds like some kind of horribly abusive relationship actually yeah exactly and so and and lots of feminist theologians have have said this model perpetuates the abuse of women uh, and they they can articulate that v- extremely persuasively how this how that that kind of deterioration of the, of the substitutionary model gets used against women constantly, uh, like sending sending women back, you know, pastors who send a woman back into a ab- really abusive relationship, saying that the, saying that they need to follow Christ's example and just you know, and then just be, sacrifice be, themselves right, for this right. because maybe their husband will come to know God because. Yeah. Anyhow. So one of the, so there's in this one, there's two focuses or two foci, I guess is the right way to say it. So the first one is that human sin is a problem. And that's where I would say evangelical fundamentalists today tend to put way too much of the focus. It's on our sin. That's, that's the real focus um, and then God has to figure out a way to deal with it. Um, and, and that way, <laughs> but in that way, human sin becomes the focus and those who tend to be self-righteous or to feel like their sins aren't really ne- nearly as big as those other people's, uh, can use this kind of, uh, we're all sinners, but you're more so because, you won't even acknowledge that this thing that you're doing that we think is a sin is a really a big sin to God. So it, it gets used in, in abusive ways, I think, mm-hmm. because instead of God's mercy being the focus, people, the problem is people's sinfulness. And then it's all about us, isn't it? You know, <laughs> so the other focus is in this one and probably the more important one is Jesus, the God man willing to pay the price, willing to free us. So, so yeah, I mean, so there's a, there's a truth to this one that's worth hanging on to. And that is, if you think about life, people are constantly making sacrifices for each other. Sure. Right. Um, all during the pandemic, people who have worked in supermarkets have made sacrifices on behalf and of in others. Hospitals and, and in hospitals. First right? responders. Right? And, yeah. And so, uh, Motherhood, not something we've experienced, but motherhood, fatherhood, that is raising children, having children. There are sacrifices involved in that. So there's an there's an Like element. your sleep forever. 
I mean, there's an element in which the universe itself has a sacrificial element and the sun is slowly dying. It's slowly giving up its energy. And in the meantime, we live because of that. So that's a truth of the substitutionary model, but it's so it's so prone to abuse. You mm-hmm. just have to be really careful with it. So And it's so prone to making God a, a thing to fear, a, a, a being to fear, and, and to not uh, sense gentleness or grace from. I remember so, when I took a course in lit film and religion, and one of the big parts of that course was to find the Jesus character in all the movies, find the one who sacrifices themselves in order for the good and happy ending. And so that's what it, that's what it just reminded me of. Every movie we watched, one of the first questions our professor would ask is, who was the Jesus, Jesus character in there? Who sacrificed himself? And so, you know, that idea of Jesus as sacrifice just continues to, it's uh-huh. in our movies, in our books and uh-huh. our college classes, apparently. Yeah. And, you know, and there's some of these atonement uh, models that have uh, some others that have it as well. But in this one, it's not completely um, voluntary on Jesus' part. It's required by God, by this skewed sense of justice. And so, um, yeah. So yeah. especially that sacrifice that is demanded is consistent with this particular model. Yeah, Anselm some uses the word necessity mm-hmm. a lot. It's a necessity. So that's that's problematic. So let's go on to the third image, the third classical image. And this is what's sometimes called the moral influence uh, theory. And it goes back to a medieval lover by the name of <laughs> Abelard, uh, Pierre Abelard. Who got in trouble. Who got, who <laughs> because got in... he really loved loving. <laughs> yes. And... And the, the young woman he was trained, he was he was hired to tutor in theology. They got to tutoring in a very different way. And the young woman's uncle did not particularly like Abelard's form of tutoring, even though these two are in love. And so it's it's a story for another time. We won't go into what all happens, but but so Abelard's model, we here's here's the title we've given to it. What's got what's love got to do with it? What's got yeah, and it's but we would say the answer to that is everything. So for Abelard and for this moral influence model, it, it starts and ends in love. And so, go ahead, Tony. So, yes, yeah, so, I mean, that, this is the one, Abelard didn't like Anselm's model, so he, re, <laughs> he reframes it. In, in medieval universities, theology professors disagree with each other, which is kind of cool when you think about it. So, so Abelard says, what does it mean that Christ died for us, died for our sins? And he wants to go to the idea that this is, this actually is God's supreme act of love for us. And to, to see that portrayed, you know, portrayed on the cross and to learn about it. And of course, medieval people would have seen this in the mass every time the mass was celebrated because it's about, it's really about the, the crucifixion. To, to learn this, to learn about this divine action on our behalf, the idea is that it's it will awaken in us a responsive love for God. And that love that's awakened in us uh, by Christ's cross, it influences us to change our heart and our direction and our and and change our life uh, in a different in a better way. And so, Christ's love uh, kindles our attempts to love God, and His Christ's love is particularly portrayed on the cross, and then it redirects us. Right? So this is the idea of love blossoming on the cross. God loves us this much that 
um, God will go this far to show us how much God loves us and, and Christ's action in, um, on the cross is, is to tug at our hearts and to see and take in this love and then want to respond in the same way in this kind of love that gives. So here the, the, the action of Christ on the cross doesn't change anything in God. It changes stuff in us. Right. So that's why it's sometimes called the moral influence or the subjective model of atonement. And that's where forgiveness comes in too. You know, we respond in love to God's love for us. I mean, that's what forgiveness is, right? God's loving acknowledgement, acceptance of us. And so our responding back to God in love completes the cycle of forgiveness and frees us then to love in new ways. So the, the focus here is the nature of God's love calls forth our love. Right. So, so yeah, it's focused on who is God. What's God about? That's really interesting. That's an interesting one because like, it kind of feels like it gives up a lot of control, you know, and, and just lets, it sounds actually very community of Christ to me in some ways. I don't know if this is true or not, but like we have in community of Christ, we, um, you know, we take the responsibility on ourselves to do, to make those changes, to do the, be those people. And this sounds like something that we could get behind. I don't know if that's true, but it does. Well, I, I think we are behind it and we may not even have known it, but if you've ever heard anyone, and I'm sure you have complain that, Oh, in the past, we used to have these rousing sermons that told how we were the one true church and everybody else was wrong or that, you know, talked about, you know, the, the prison house or, fire and brimstone. And now we don't do that anymore. And all we talk about is love. <laughs> Have you heard it? You know, people Not saying, Oh, blah, 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 love, love, love. You know, what, are, what are we talking about? But that's what's here. That's what this atonement model is all about is acknowledging that God first and foremost is love and Christ as representative representative of God's presence is love in our midst. So that's that's uh, Abelard's model, um, and we'll go on to the next one. We've got is... nine, and we're not going to get through them all, but we wanted to introduce you to a few of them. Yeah. So we'll probably do a couple more. Yeah, we'll 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 have to drop off here in a minute. So, so the fourth one is we're we're calling joining us in woundedness, and this comes from Julian of Norwich, which. Her dates for her life are 1343 to perhaps about 1416. And our little catchy title for this one is Ditch Salvation. And we'll explain a little bit about that. But that's a nice one to, that will capture this. Ditch Salvation is what we're calling this one. <laughs> so we don't know this woman's actual name. She's called Saint, or she's called Julian because that's the church she was attached to, St. Julian's Church in Norwich, England. She was an anchoress, which means she, was a, she took a special monastic vow in which she entered a small little building attached to the church and was given last rites as she entered that. She was entering that for the rest of her life, withdrawing from society, at least from outward society, in order to, to be there to pray for the church and for the town. And so... Uh, to make, a, to make a long and interesting story short, she has a near-death experience. And in that near-death experience, 
the, as the priest is saying last rites and holding a crucifix in front of her, she has a series of visions. Now she, she doesn't die actually. She has a series of visions. And then she writes a book out of those visions called Revelations of Divine Love. And it's one of the most unusual and really magnificent texts of the of medieval theology that you'll ever read. It's quite, quite profound. And so her, her visions then are, are, are in response to seeing Christ on the cross, right? Christ, Christ on the cross becomes real for her as she's dying. And she, she, what happens in these revelations is she kind of completely rethinks medieval theology on the nature, on what, what Christ's death is about. Right. And so how she describes it <clears throat> is in this vision is that she sees this person who has experienced God's love and God's call and, and they get up and they start running to God and for no fault of their own, they, they stumble and they fall into a ditch and they're injured and they can't get out of the ditch and they forget, they can't see God's loving gaze on them anymore. And they despair. And if you think about, you know, the places where people go, uh, the guilt places, the shame places that uh, people get stuck in, um, you know, but she she has completely taken out of this this model that there's any shame or fault on people's part. They were they were running towards God and they just they accidentally fell in a ditch and they couldn't get out by themselves. And, and it's clear when you're reading this 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 little story. This it's in I don't know, chapter fifty one or fifty two of of Revelations of Divine Love. Um, when you're when you're reading the story, it's clear that. This person is Adam, who represents all humanity. human race. And so she, in, instead of instead of understanding Adam's fall in terms of guilt and culpability, she understands it in terms of human beings becoming wounded. It it totally shifts the nature of what of of sin and finitude and the human predicament. It's a different, completely different way of thinking about the human predicament. We're, we're wounded. We need help in our woundedness. That's our situation. And so she's looking at Christ on the cross, on the crucifix. And what she sees is Christ's life and death is, and, and Christ being willing to be wounded is Christ crawling into the ditch with us. And they're reminding us that God's loving gaze is still on us and helping us to find wholeness again and to see clearly that God is still there. So it's, it's, a, it's a quite a, a, a warm and loving and humanizing way of looking at Christ, Christ's death. It's, you know, Christ joining us. Yeah. Um, and the, the issue is, how, how to help a wounded humanity. And it's so pertinent to her time. She's, she lives in the 14th century, the 14th century, absolute worst century ever to live in, Carla. That's the century of the bubonic plague. It's the century of the Hundred Years' War. It's the century of crusades between Christians in Europe. And it's just a miserable time to live. And so, uh, as one scholar notes, you know, as all these wounded soldiers are coming back from a crusade, an English crusade, crusade against the French... Can you, if you can imagine, these are these are both all Catholics, you know, fighting against each other, and all the as these Shelley Rambo's the scholar she describes all these wounded 
veterans coming back to Norwich and what Julian must have heard and saw from her little anchor hold uh, as these people came back to Norwich. Because one of her roles, she had a window that that looked into the sanctuary of the church so she could could be part of the mass and receive communion. But she also had a window to the outside where she um, was there as counsel and spiritual director to anyone who came to her window. Um, So, yeah. So that, I think that's a pretty cool one. I mean, 2020 was not a great year, but at least we had like Netflix and stuff, right? Like she didn't (laughs) even have that. Like that's horrible. And running water and, 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 and no, and no rat fleas in our house, Carla. So there you go. Well, then thank God for that. Thank God for that. Oh, that's so sweet. Christ, Jesus Christ sounds so kind in this one. He, yeah. Like getting in the ditch with us. That's yeah. so kind. Yeah. I mean, Julian depicts a God you can actually love, which I think is yeah. quite, quite powerful. So, so we'll, the, the, the focus of that one is a God who meets us in our woundedness. That's what Christ dying for us shows us. And so let's, go on to that yeah, one? well, we're going to jump to what would be our sixth one. We'll jump over our fifth one. We're just do a couple more. And this one is one that's, that's less well-known, but it's from the late, the late 18, early 1900s. It's connected with theologians like, like Forsyth and Dinsmore. And this one is that the cross is the revelation of God's suffering God's suffering with and for the whole creation, right? So here we have we have a nice so, title for this. So one. our little catchy title is "Love Hurts." <laughs> if you know the Nazareth song, right? It's it's uh, that's what this one is, is totally about. I feel like you guys are only picking these now because of your catchy titles. Just that's, <laughs> that's what I feel is happening. Maybe, maybe not. So we want to pick the ones that have some unique pieces to them. So that, but yeah, it helps. <laughs> so th- this one, um, and gosh, it's so, it's so, uh, so powerful in terms of late 19th, early 20th century European life and, and all the suffering that, that goes on. But um, in this one, that theologians are say that this is what it means that Christ dies for us and for humanity. That in the cross of Christ, what we see depicted is what has been true of God always, right? This is, this is always true of God, that God shares in the creation suffering and travail. And one of these theologians, C.A. Dinsmore, this is 1906. This is, this is his, I love the statement of Dinsmore. He says, there was a cross in the heart of God before there was one planted on the green hill outside Jerusalem. And now that the cross of wood has been taken down, the one in the heart of God abides. End quote. In other words, Jesus, Jesus' death on our behalf shows us what's true of God, that God has always been and always will suffer for creation. Um, it's just a, a breathtaking image of the nature of God sharing in creation's travail. So I think it's beautiful. And so the focus in this one is obviously about the nature of God, that God has always shared in creation's suffering, of yeah. which the cross reminds us. And there were some some writers and poets after World War I who drew on this kind of imagery to help make some kind of sense, if they could, of all of the scarred and battered and wounded veterans that came home from World War I to England and just just absolute absolute misery that 
millions of people killed. And, and the, the idea here is not, you, you don't understand it in terms of culpability. You understand it in terms of the cross shows us that God, God has been suffering this way for us all along and that God shares in that, in that suffering of humanity. So it's a whole different way. In other words, sin and sin and guilt are not so much the issues here, yeah. but mortality and, and theodicy and human and human misery and suffering are the, the key issues here. So, so here are the catchy titles for the other ones that we haven't, that we haven't done. Let's, we won't tell you all of, all of what we said, but we'll just give you the catchy titles. So one of them is the Christus Victor remix, which is Martin Luther's. And then um, soul renovations that's, that's William Temple's, uh, the idea that Christ's death on the cross shows us the links to which God will go to help form love in us. So it has some similarities to, to Abelard, but it's not different too. Mm -hmm. And then God goes to hell for us, <laughs> which sounds like a song too. Huh? Did you and just that's... tell God to go to hell? <laughs> God went there. <laughs> so on the cross, God went there for human beings. That's, that's Jürgen Moltmann, who's still alive, uh, but it, it connects to his experience of being a German soldier who was captured and didn't realize what he was actually fighting for. But then in, in prison camp, he realized he got to see pictures of the death camps and realized that's what he's been fighting for all along. He didn't realize it. And the, uh, the, the guilt and despair just about destroyed him until he read the story of Christ's crucifixion in Mark, where Jesus says, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's for him. That's like, that's a God I can believe in because that's how he and his fellow German soldiers felt after. And that's war. where his theology of the atonement began. And it, it, again, another take on it. And then the, the taking the fall for us all is the other catchy title, which is uh, Christ as the ultimate scapegoat. Um, and so that that Christ becomes the scapegoat so that no one else has to be. Right. And this this is connected to the French French philosopher René Girard and to um, American theologian Mark Heim. And and they 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 try to understand the nature of scapegoating in human experience. And that the idea is that when when, when scripture says Christ died for us, the you, you you can interpret that in terms of there don't need to be any more cultural, social scapegoats. We don't, we don't, we don't have to take the people who are other and do stuff to them because we're afraid that they bring contamination and this kind of stuff. It's a, in other words, it's a, it's a really, there's a, a really powerful uh, Mark so, Himes book is titled saved from sacrifice, right? That all of our cultures, including American culture live on the idea that we have to sacrifice stuff and, and, uh, you know, lots of people during the pandemic were willing to sacrifice everybody so they didn't have to wear a mask. And, you know, it's like, and Haim is like saying, oh, for goodness sakes, you know. Um, yeah. And we, we talk about veterans that way all the time, that they sacrifice for this and that. What if we sent them to a war that was a giant mistake, right? You know, then they became scapegoats for bad national policy, right? And so um, anyway. And so here he's, they are looking at Christ as as being the scapegoat who helps us realize what we're doing. And, and um, is that reminder that, that that's no longer needed, that that's, that is not the way to, to go forward. So anyhow, so, that's the short version of, 
we, well, this we has been those other ones just on the edge there. Well, yeah, absolutely. So um, just so you know, listeners, you can, um, we're going to attach a document so you can look at the other ones if you want to. So you can have a little look, see what they, what Tony and Charmaine have worked on. But I have a, a final question, I think for you two. And, you know, we've heard maybe five or six different theories of atonement. How do we choose one or which one's the best or, or how do we, what do we focus on? I guess what I would say is don't pick one. Yeah. Right. Don't pick one. It's the, a buffet. <laughs> yes, it, it is. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a, it's a Christological buffet, but I think that, you know, the cool thing here is that God, the word became flesh and blood and was murdered by the Roman empire. And the early Christians realized somehow that this was on behalf of us. This is, we're in the middle of, we're in the middle of, something that you can't spell out. You can't turn it into a theorem. You can't turn it into a math problem. You can't, sorry, Carla, you can't turn it into a math problem. You can't, you can't turn it into a doctrine. It's too big. It's it has too, big. too many faces. It's multifaceted. And, and all of them might be worth taking in, mm-hmm. maybe not embracing solely, but taking in because each one is trying to say something about who is Jesus, who is God. And they're, they're based in life experience. They're based in scripture and they're based in the long um, story of Christianity. And also they say things about us too and to Mm -hmm. us. So sometimes I need to, I just need to be reminded God is with me in my woundedness. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when I look upon the misery of creation, I need to be reminded by the cross that God shares in that. And sometimes I need to be reminded that I'm Barabbas (laughs) and that I've done and said stupid and really harsh and bad things. And I need, I need, I need to be forgiven for them. So in other words, the models speak to different parts of our lives and different parts of our journeys. And I would never want to, you know, short myself on any of them by picking one. Uh, which is actually how I do buffets too, Carl. I don't. <laughs> you know uh, believe me, I've seen it. <laughs> uh, I am well aware of how you do buffets, Tony. <laughs> but, but also, also, I think, you know, for people who have been harmed by one of these models, mm. avoid it and recognize don't, don't give up. Don't give up on good Friday because because somebody somebody taught you badly about the meaning of Christ's cross. Or or didn't know, or didn't know that there are so many different ways of understanding what God, what Christ, what humanity is is offered in in Jesus' death, life, resurrection, suffering, presence, all of those things. I mean, I'm, I'm reminded of that, that marvelous statement Bonhoeffer made in, in his letters and papers in prison. He says, only a suffering God can help. And that's kind of what we have here. That's, that's the, to me, the beauty and the brilliance and the genius of this aspect of the Christian faith connected to the cross of Christ. Well, this has just been fascinating, uh, so fascinating. And I really hope that we've given people 
just a huge look at what the word atonement means. It doesn't have to be scary. It doesn't have to be a scary word at all. It can be a word that understands different aspects of who Christ was. And I just think that is so fascinating and so cool. Thank you so much for all the work that you put into this. That's awesome. Well, this is uh, actually, this is something we've been working on about once every two years. And we still keep saying we need to write something more extensive on this. So each time we add more to it. So so this is like this third incarnation of trying to, to write something down. So hopefully it would be helpful and some starting places. Yeah, that's really cool. So thanks for offering that for us. I really appreciate it. You too. Amazing job. Thanks so much. Is there anything you want to say that you didn't get a chance to say? Um, just that as we think about Easter being an Easter season, it gives us room and time to spend spend some thought, spend some reflection on some of these different aspects that of who who Jesus was and is. Uh, how does God's love come to us? And to to not just go with the easy um, Palm Sunday. We got Palm Sunday. We got Good Friday. We got Easter Sunday, and and now we're done because that's all that we need. There's a there's that whole season afterwards is a chance to say, what did that mean? What does it mean to me right now um, that God has unmasked the weakness of death? That's beautifully put. Thank you so much. Um, Yeah, we shouldn't jump away from Easter straight to the birthday of the church and Pentecost, right? Don't jump from Easter to birthdays. Let yourself really feel it. I always ask people during, at least during the Easter week, the week leading up to Easter, I'm like, let yourself feel it. But it sounds like we need to let ourselves feel it after Easter as well. Yep. Be curious. Let the mystery meet you. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Charmaine. Thank you so much, Tony. This has been just a wonderful podcast. I really enjoyed it. We have too. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Project Zion Podcast. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or whatever podcast streaming service you use, and while you are there, give us a five-star rating. Project Zion Podcast is sponsored by Latter-day Seeker Ministries of Community of Christ. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are of those speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Latter-day Seeker Ministries or Community of Christ. The music has been graciously provided by Dave Hines.